More Muslims have been killed in the past five years in Canada as a result of Islamophobia than any other G7 country. We saw this in the Quebec City mosque attack. We saw this when Mohammed Aslam Zafis at IMO was attacked. And we most recently saw this when our London family was attacked. Today, we talk about Islamophobia in Canada. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to another episode of Profiled, a podcast by NCCM. I'm your host, Omar Kamisa, and as always, I'm joined by NCCM CEO, Mustafa Farooq. Uh, Mustafa, how are you doing today? Alhamdulillah, you know, it's been, uh, it's been a week. I feel like this has been one of those weeks that has been uh, incredibly hectic, incredibly hectic, but, you know, I feel like we can say that about every week. Yeah, I mean, I think like... Well, I, it's often a thing that I think about, you know, the, the Prophet Sunnah famously in one of his hadith, uh, that's very well narrated, Prophet said, you know, don't be hasty. Uh, and I think oftentimes one of the ways that we kind of trick ourselves is we, like, we almost get into a competition with each other. And I'm, I want to say I'm more guilty of this than almost anybody else of talking about how busy we are. You know, like we started like, oh my God, like I was so busy. I was so overslammed. I'm this, I'm that. I had to get so many things done. Uh, but I think one of the things about working in a place like NCCM is getting to see how, of course, you have to move fast, you have to work hard, but also just getting to meet people and see where they're at, especially in a week where a lot happened this week. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I think that's, for me, one of the the, the things I appreciate the most about working at NCCM. You know, like, you know, we've spoken before about uh, coming from, for me, coming from the corporate you know, sector. And, you know, when we were busy there, it was a complete different kind of busy, you know, and now it's, it's, it's almost like an ajr from Allah, you know, it's ajr from Allah that you're doing this kind of work. Um, but, you know, like, as to, to be very frank, there are some times where we, you know, are busy and it's, it's not a great thing. You know, it's not a great thing sometimes when we are busy. Uh, sometimes, alhamdulillah, there are some really great times where we're busy and, you know, we, we see some big, you know, significant movements and, you know, our community is really galvanized. But, you know, the topic we want to talk about today is a time where, you know, we were incredibly busy um, and it might have been one of the most devastating days uh, for our Muslim community here in Canada uh, in the past little while. Um, and, you know, today's topic that we want to talk about is, you know, really stemming from June 6th, 2021. Um, on that day, when a beautiful family was going for a walk, you know, after dinner uh, and a man full of hate decided to, you know, just jump a curb in his truck and run them over. Uh, and I think it's a day that, you know, each and every one of us, when we talk about it, when we think about it, when we remember it, it's one of those days that really sinks our heart and sinks our soul. Um, and as someone like for, for yourself, and, you know, as we go through this conversation about that day and about, you know, what's come after that day, when you think back on that 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 time, on that community, what is, what what really kind of, you know, sticks with you and do you remember the most from from that time and from that situation? I think it was the moment when I first got the call. So I think, like, I think it was around Fajr time, uh, the, the day after the attack, when I heard about somebody from within the London Muslim community gave me a call and said, uh, this is an incident that might have happened. We need to potentially come down. And, you know, oftentimes at NCCM, we get a bunch of, we, we do get calls about bad things that happen. And sometimes, uh, they're, you know, extremely tragic, like when we got a call 
um, on September 12th, 2020, and the killing of Allah I got a call and was there perhaps a half hour after Allah had been, uh, you know, taken from his earthly plane. But sometimes we get calls and we don't know what those calls are really about or anything like that. But on when I got that call, I just got a hit in my stomach because at that point we still weren't 100% sure what had happened. But I just had a pit in my stomach that something has gone horribly, horribly wrong. And so I was sitting in Ottawa. I got out. I think I walked over. I told my wife that I need to go. We both quickly packed up some clothes. I got in my car and just started to drive uh, to London. Um, and the entire time I was just on the phone making calls. And I, that drive was one that I don't think I'll forget because the entire time I was thinking about the fact that another family that night had gone out for a walk, just like my family had gone out for a walk uh, and wouldn't be coming home that day. Yeah, you know, as you're saying it, it really, you know, it really takes me back to that 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 morning. Uh, and it kind of honestly, like you said, it flashes me back to September 12th with the IMO. And uh, I still remember the exact place I was when Brother Omar Farouk from the IMO called me. Um, and he called me before he even called the cops. Like he called me and he's like, I need help. And I'm and to be honest, I, 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 and when something like that happens, you kind of think he's just like, you know, pranking you a little bit. You're like, wait, what? Can you repeat that, please? Like, I, I don't think I it really understood. Feel real. It doesn't feel real. Yeah. I, I thought he was pranking me. I was like, can you repeat that? Like, I need you to just tell me again what just happened. Um, and you know, that moment, like, I feel like, I think there was actually like this PTSD that stuck with me from that moment. From that moment that Brother Omar called me that, you know, when somebody calls me late at night or early in the morning, you have this like pit in your stomach where it's like, you know, Bismillah, please let me pick up that phone and let me not let it not be someone else that's dead. Let it not be another family that's suffering. Let it not be something like that. And, you know, Alhamdulillah, with the IMO, I called you right away. You were in town. You know, you were able to go and be there on site. Um, and then, you know, with London, I remember you called me early in the morning and you're just like, we don't know for sure yet, but just go. So he's like, you, you're like, you'll get there before I will from Ottawa and then I'll meet you in Ottawa and we can do everything. Um, and the moment we arrived in Ottawa, we arrived, I arrived in London, you called me and you're like, it's confirmed. Like, it's confirmed that this happened. And I remember we had to go to the police department uh, with Brother Nawaz, um, Imam um, Tawakkal uh, to actually do the whole press conference. And it was from that moment on where it was almost like it was a full week of incredibly incredible resilience from that community but incredible heartbreak as you watched a community like just get like a, a family of that community just get torn apart kind of thing. Um, and for me, I think the thing that sticks with me is just, you know, I, I, I often say, and I think it's the same thing with IMO is just how amazing that, that, that leadership of the community is. The family is, uh, the leadership from, you know, whether it's IMO, Brother Omar and, you know, the Shayukh there, or whether it's IMO and it's, you know, Brother Bilal and, and Imam Arij and, you know, Imam Tawakkul and Brother Nawaz that just kind of had this resiliency that, you know, that this is the, one of the worst times and they were going to, you know, be there to, as, as a strength and a pillar for that community. Within the Muslim community, we often get down a lot on our leaders, right? Um, and like, you know, masjid boards, you know, being what they are, sometimes there's good, sometimes there's bad. And you look at NCC, sometimes we do stuff that's great and sometimes we do stuff that's not so great. And oftentimes, you know, from an external perspective, it must, I'm sure it's frustrating. And I've been on the other side of feeling frustrated by the response. Uh, but one of the things that I always think is incredible is at times of real crisis, how our folks come together, even when they're in the midst of incredible pain. 
to see that resilience and coming together was something that was just subhanAllah, it was incredible in that moment. But I think for me, the part that will stick with me though is just the, the pain, the pain of like the family, what they went through, what they must continue to go through on a day-to-day basis. Um, you know, uh, every year almost we go and meet the families from the CCIQ uh, attack. And the reality is that so many of the victims, including those who didn't pass away, but were grievously injured, their lives continue to be forever altered. People like Eamon Darbali. So Eamon, uh, may Allah reward him in this life and the next, he literally jumped in front of bullets to take bullets for, to save the lives of those people around him. But, you know, like suddenly if you think about that and, you know, you're like, oh, that's incredibly heroic. And it was, mashallah, it was incredibly heroic. But every day, Brother Eamon is in incredible pain. Like he's now, you know, uh, paralyzed and is in a wheelchair and his life is just incredibly painful just from all of the, the wounds that he suffered on that day. Um, and I think it's often like we start thinking about, okay, like next steps, especially at NCCM, we think about, okay, how do we, you know, work with folks? How are we making sure the families are protected? How are we making sure people are getting the legal help that they need? How are we even thinking about education? How are we thinking about this? But at that real core level, that human level, and that is the part that always sticks with me. It's just that feeling of when we went to the Janazah prayer and our young man had to come in for it to 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 do the janazah prayer for his family that i'll never forget yeah and i i think you know we'll get into and you know uh, we're going to be joined today by uh nccm uh, lawyer uh, nuseba azim um and we'll walk through the our london family act and what's come you know the work afterwards but i i think you hit the nail on the head like it's that emotional aspect of it you know like brother ayman darbali in quebec city and i remember you know after the imo incident we did a um, a debrief for you know the the for the people that were at the masjid at that time in IMO, um, and there were folks that were inside the masjid like you know Sheikh Ayman Tahir, who came outside and saw you know Brother Aslam's office. There was a gentleman that was that came because you know as as we all know, uh, Brother uh, Muhammad Aslam's office was standing at the door for a COVID check, uh, and was and could this one brother couldn't get into the masjid because the masjid was closed at the time, and just prayed on the grass beside the masjid. Um, and he saw the the perpetrator walk by him and then run towards him at, before and after the Muhammad Aslam's office. He watched the entire thing happen. He finished Allah. He watched it happen. He's like, "Why is this guy going to the masjid?" Saw it happen, and then the guy ran towards him. Uh, and that, like, I remember speaking to him again, and that's that has haunted him for his since then. It's now been two years, right? There was one friend who was sitting with Brother Muhammad Aslam's office outside, went inside to the bathroom, and came outside after two minutes and his friend was gone, right? Like a lot of the time, like those are the people that, you know, really resonate with our hearts, right? Resonate with our hearts that, you know, these. Yeah, like, like Muhammad Aslam, Zavis, like I had just met him during that Ramadan. Um, so I had come to the masjid to do something else. I think I was coming to pray and then I had a meeting there uh, or right around there. And when I came uh, to the masjid, um, as I often am when I'm not wearing suits and stuff, I was just wearing sweats and so or something like that, some really casual clothes. And he was handing out food that day. Um, and when he saw me, I think he thought that I was homeless or that I needed some help. So he immediately was like, okay, you know, brother, come to get some food, get some things. It's like, yeah, and you know, he 
The next time I went back to the masjid to meet him again on another occasion, he was equally just that loving uh, person with just so much in his soul to give. And this is just, you know, the few interactions that I had with him. Every one of them was him trying to be just an incredible human being. And then coming back to the masjid and seeing him in the state that he was in, already on his way to his Lord in the highest of, of ranks, uh, was honestly one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do or, or see. And I, I'm not going to lie, like sometimes even now when I go to the masjid, I think about that. I think about the fact that like, okay, is this my last prayer, theoretically speaking? Like, of course, there's always a sense that we could pass away from anything. But, it, you know, when I'm making sujood, I'm not going to lie, it's something, something I think about. Yeah, I, I I completely agree. And you know, the really crazy thing about what happened at IMO is I was there the the, the Juma before. Uh, so it was like one day before and I met Brother Muhammad Hassan's office the day before. At Juma Salah, I did the announcement. I stood outside, like my whole going to the masjid regular thing. The, literally the the Friday before. So I, it was a day, or, a day or two before. And I was there. I was at the masjid. I was with the community. And, you know, it, it really just kind of takes us aback for a second. But I, I, I want to take us back to to London and as we have this discussion about you know what happened in London and you know I remember the the sheer amount of community that after what happened in London were just shocked to their core you know this was one of the first times we've seen in a long time uh where members of the community coast to coast and I wouldn't even say coast to coast I would say across the world were shocked to their core you know a, a stat that you know that that you've told me that you know often you know is something that sticks with me, is that in the past since the Quebec City Mosque in the past five years, um, more people have been killed uh, in Canada from Islamophobic attacks than any other G7 country, right? And you know I think it was after London where the where it was shook to the core. I think I did more news interviews with organizations that week than I've done in my entire life, and it wasn't just Canadian. It was you know Canadian news, but it was also international news. Right, we were doing Al Jazeera was covering it. There were people, you know, in African countries, in Asian countries that were that were that were covering it because it was one of those things where it wasn't, you know, someone that was providing self defense. Right, it wasn't a, a a fight. Right, it was just an innocent family, you know, wearing their full, you know, religious garments, going for a walk, and a man that just decided that that he did not want to see them enough. And, you know, I tell the story often, and you know, I think it's something that. I think I use it in every time I talk about it, but you know, I, I still, rem I still, till this day, will remember how my wife reacted the first time that she saw a pickup truck after that happened. Um, and till this day, I remember when I was coming to Ottawa, and it was like six months later, right? And we saw a full Muslim family from three generations, the exact same situation, wearing like their four shawar kurta, walking in Peterborough, Ontario, which is a town that is very similar to London. It's not a huge population of Muslims there. Right. Uh, and my wife made me pull over and watch that family cross the road and get home safe just because she was so scared something would happen. Right. And I think that right there is the reason that that we had to make sure that it wasn't just going to be stopped at that. Right. It wasn't just going to be stopped at our London, you know, the, the, the family gets attacked and then we kind of all just move on. We let the politicians come at the vigil. We let them talk. We let, we let them have their presentations and, you know, give their condolences. But that was not going to be enough. Um, and I think that's not going to be enough just because of how much. Like, we saw what happened in London, 10,000 people on the street. Right. And, you know, because that, I think this is why we needed to make sure that our community was safer today than they were yesterday and safer 
on June 7th and they were on June 6th. And every single day since then is just trying to keep that in mind. And, you know, I'll pass that back on to you of just like, you know, the work that you've done. And inshallah, when Nusaybo joins us, we could talk about that as well. But just what has happened since then where, you know, where we've really decided that we had to make sure that it was going to be a safer community for our for our families. No, honestly, like I like to to talk about NCCM and the work that we do, but like I'm gonna just be like brutally honest. Like I think the reality is that the change was gonna come, right? Like uh, we were happy to be a small part of that change because, like, while well, what happened was horrifying. I don't know if shocking is the right word because we had had Quebec City. We had already had IMO and we'd had continued attacks ever since. Like we had so many attacks targeting black Muslim women in Edmonton in those intervening months between September. We knew that there were 300 white supremacist groups that were active in Canada. Like all the ingredients were there. It was just a matter of like, unfortunately, it was a horrifying reality, but it's just a matter of time. And unfortunately, and may Allah forgive me, may Allah protect everyone, may Allah prevent any harm from befalling anyone. Unfortunately, a lot of the preconditions have still not changed. So the preconditions, the violence are still there. And of course, there has been important policy progress made, but not nearly far enough. Uh, and so, like, alhamdulillah, so many of the things that we did, fighting for things like the special representative uh, on Islamophobia, that was an NCCM call pushing for a National Victim Hate Support Fund. It was an NCCM call. Those are things that were technically NCCM calls and pushes and advocacy and countless nights of work. But the also like the equal reality is that if you hadn't, if members of our community hadn't stood up to do something, we wouldn't have got anywhere near there. Um, but I think that also ultimately takes us to this question about, to me, one of the most important pieces coming out in terms of a policy response to what happened in London is the Our Family Act, Bill 86, which has now been tabled um, in Queen's Park. But before we talk about that, we should probably talk to the person who drafted the whole thing. Yeah, I, I, to I totally agree with you. And, you know, uh, we, we'll, we'll, we'll bring on our guest, you know, shortly. But I think, you know, for me and for me and you, the biggest aspect for us was I remember after the Our London family attack on June 6th, there was a moment at the end of June uh, 2021 where both of us had to jump on the call and just said like all all the there was all those different attacks that happened to different families after that. I remember there was a time it was happening every single day, every single day you and I were getting a call saying this happened or this happened um, or, or this person got yelled at or this person gets got screamed at. I remember in London, there were people that got yelled at at bus stops. There were people that got yelled at, you know, with their kids. Um, and there was a time I, at the end of the month and, you know, me and you were both like our heart was starting like, you know, like there's there's a little bit of, a, you know, us when we have to go to these horrific events that, you know, we kind of push our emotions to the side because we understand the community is suffering so hard. And we're just going to, you know, be there as like a strength for the community. But there was a time we got on the phone and we we're just like, yeah, Allah, like, you know what, this is this is now getting a little bit, you know what I mean? Yeah, and no. I, I strongly thought about resigning. Like, like, I honestly thought, I was like, you know what? Like, I think, I think the moment I thought about resigning most strongly was, I think it had been almost a month after London and there'd been like attacks every single day. Like there was somebody in London who came with a baseball bat. There was somebody in Hamilton who went with a pickup truck 
and you know threatened to run over another family who had to hide in some bushes who was like you know uh, the spouse of an imam uh, in 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 Hamilton there were attacks in Edmonton where a man you know threw down people in St Albert two women knocked one of them unconscious and pulled out a knife and put it to her throat but I think the one that probably I felt was like I actually called Nadia to say I think I gotta hang up the hat was after there was a gentleman in Saskatoon who was just going about his life and they took like a bunch of guys surrounded him took a knife and just started cutting off his beard and slicing him like all over his body um and it's just like I think as a community like we have to just as a matter of survival just kind of try to forget about that stuff because it's just too painful to think about and to acknowledge uh but but there's no 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 doubt about that yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that, you know, really ties us into what, you know, our, our next conversation is going to be about, about actions that we can actually take that are substantial. Um, and I think that really kind of draws, you know, kind of the emotional aspect of us being there on the ground, you know, what it's like. So our guest today uh, is Nuseba Alazim, uh, staff lawyer with NCCM. Uh, and honestly, I don't, I'm looking at her bio right here and, I don't even know what there is to say. I could be speaking here for like the next 25 minutes uh, talking about uh, Nuseba. Uh, but Nuseba has her Juris Doctor from you know Western Law. She We are very, very lucky to have her as our staff, a staff lawyer here um, at NCCM. Um, and e honestly, even before she was with NCCM, she's done such a great work in the London community um, and is one of those people that, you know, on that day of in London, you know, was so instrumental at being that kind of leader in the community, being that strength in the community. Um, and I still remember was part of the discussion when we talked about how we're the next steps that we're supposed to be taking. Uh, so Naseba, thank you so much for joining us uh, today and, you know, having that conversation that we're having today about the Our London Family Act and, you know, the steps that we can take since June 6th. Thank you so much for having me, Omar, and for your far too generous introduction. Naseba, like... I still remember, obviously, in the aftermath of London. I remember us all sitting together in the London Muslim Mosque in the in the office, just being shocked. When you came to NCCM, and I think what I think probably like the first assignment during the first week, the first thing that we talked about was okay. We know in the aftermath of the attack, every leader came, everybody promised that there would be change. What are we going to do to stop it? And then we thought, okay let's operationalize this into a piece of legislation and policy. Like, what did you think in terms of like the path forward here that's ultimately arrived at the introduction of the Our London Family Act? So, um, I mean, alhamdulillah, when I came here, the, a lot of the groundwork for that had already been done by NCCM through the 61 policy recommendations that were made for all the different levels of government. So from there, it was, it was a relatively... Uh, well, not easy, but it was common sense in terms of, okay, here's the recommendations from what we've heard from the ground, right? What communities around the country are saying and around the province are saying, this is the, the changes that we need to see. Those recommendations were put together and then it's just, you know, okay, so these ones are provincial and how do you implement that um, in a legislative form? What is that process like, Joseba? Like, I mean, I'm, I'm a lawyer, so I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I could talk about this too, but like, what did it feel like to be involved in actually drafting this piece of legislation? 
uh, it felt surreal for sure. Um, a lot of it was calling you <laughs> and saying, please give me some um, assistance. So there, you, you were really instrumental in kind of pointing the, my, uh, pointing the direction of which ways to go. But a lot of it also was, you know, you, there's no need to reinvent the wheel. You take a look at how uh, activists and legislatures before you have, have amended legislation for certain areas, for example, education, was a big thing that we heard across the country, across the province, that people wanted reform in education. And we've seen how the, the legislature has stepped in and reformed the Education Act and, and made changes around bullying and in, in, in the, the public education sphere. So, you know, it, it is just taking, really carrying the baton from people who've already laid that groundwork before you and, and then making sure that the specific and direct concerns that are raised by the community are then reflected. Um, but it is, it is on a personal note, really humbling and, and an amazing experience, I think, to, to have gotten the opportunity to work on something that, um, inshallah, will create a lot of change. And, um, starting off conversations with groups of people saying this is a problem to then seeing it actually become law. Yeah, I, th right? I think for me, it, it, it means just so much the fact that uh, you were so instrumental in, in writing this this draft legislation just because, you know, speaking to you on that day of, speaking to you, the community on that day of, and just uh, as a voice for that community that you are and that you've continued to be, it just, it means so much to, to just myself as speaking on an individual basis that, that it's coming from you, that these are things that, you know, come from the community that has suffered that kind of, uh, that, lost that tragedy um you know one thing i want to just jump in about and i know i think you, you touched on it is for anyone that's listening you know naseba mentioned the 61 recommendations and you know those really came together from doing consultations i think you know after june uh, 6th at the end of june we did about 30 different consultations with community across the country um, and we really want to just narrow down how we can better support the community with live from their lived experiences um, and that's really how we came down to these six recommendations which we'll get into right now um, that came in the Our London Family Act. And uh, before we jump into like, you know, a little bit of detail uh, for those six recommendations, uh, there are six parts for anyone that, that that is interested in reading it. You can go on to nccm.ca slash Our London Family Act and, and, and review it. But that's those, as Nuseba said, like those were the recommendations that were the basis of it. But I think she's selling herself a little bit short on terms of, you know, just start <laughs> looking at those and taking it. Uh, the, when you look at the act, you can see there's a lot more detail on that act than <laughs> than the recommendations had originally. Um, and it really makes a, a pretty large you know deal when it came from it. So, I, you know, just as for myself, I just want to thank you for, you know, putting that work in and doing that and just kind of being that voice for a community that's going through the most unspeakable times. Number one, I think, just in terms of the actual act, like this is the largest piece of omnibus legislation ever put forward into any provincial federal state uh, legislature that I know of, at least. I mean, maybe somebody can correct me around the world if we're wrong about that, but in North America or Europe. Uh, and this bill, inshallah, if it does become law, offers comprehensive reform around education, around dealing with hate crimes, around dealing with uh, white supremacist groups, so many different things. Um, but I think one of the, like for me personally, getting to work with Nuseva on this, I think one of the reasons it's so like, just, and so like none, none of it was planned like this in our own minds, but like, I remember on the day of the vigil, um, like this was like the next day after, after what happened. I remember when Nuseva got onto the stage to speak 
And at this point, like, I think I, we were just running back and forth all day. And there were like so many like insane things that kept happening. Uh, like, where it's like, it's like, okay, we're in a COVID lockdown. Uh, and like so many things kept happening in that process. But then when Useba got up and took to the stage and said, Assalamu alaikum, welcome everyone to the London Muslim Mosque. I still remember those words because like, it was that feeling of like, okay, like inshallah together, we're, we're going to, we're going to make it through this. We're going to be okay. Um, and I guess like Nuseba, like my question to you is like policy is one thing. And obviously we're going to continue to fight for the policy to be passed. But how do you think like, obviously like with everything that's going on in the world, like what do you think is the path for us to be okay? Yeah. I mean, uh, you don't, the, the list of worries is so long, like where do you start and how do you tackle it? And I can't imagine, uh, I, I mean, I know personally, I feel overwhelmed with all of the, all of the different things in the world that, you know, need attention, right? So many, so many areas uh, in the world and then even at home that, that need, uh, need, need change, need reform for, for people to feel better. I think, um, I think that we saw a little bit about that. Like you just focus on your own corner of the world and that makes things better. You focus on the love that you can dole out where you are. Uh, and we did see that in, uh, in the aftermath of the vigil. And, and um, honestly, that day, that whole week was really a blur. Like, I don't think I processed actually what had happened until the week following, uh, for sure. Like I would just go running on fumes and, um, and and afterwards, I remember looking back and remember and thinking, you know, we were in the middle of a lockdown. We hadn't had Eid prayer as a community. We hadn't had Ramadan prayer as a community. The last time that we had prayed in congregation had been uh, years, I think, at that point that that the community actually got together and and prayed shoulder to shoulder, prayed next to each other, and. Um, and then, subhanAllah, like as a result of, of a, the, the actions of an Islamophobe that took the lives of like four uh, integral community members, the entire community got the opportunity to pray that night. And I remember after the vigil, everybody was, was kind of leaving. The, the, the Adan played, you could hear it because it was right outside the London Muslim Mosque. And I just looked at the streets where all these Muslims were praying on like the busiest street, one of the busiest probably streets in the city, right? In the core of the heart of the city that wow, we would never have ordinarily been had the opportunity to pray as a community on that street. And obviously um, we, it doesn't make up for what led to us being in that position to pray. Um, but like, I think, something I have learned is that, or something I believe is that in times of hardship, and this is in the Quran, the verily with the hardship, there will be ease. And it's with hardship. It's not after hardship. Allah always gives a little bit, like, like I think there's, a, there's always a little bit of like grace that's thrown into any, any bad situation. So, you know, like on a personal or political or whatever level, anytime that there is this, this massive hurt and you think, how can we move on from this? How can a community grow from this? Where, where could there possibly be healing? There's always like a little nugget of grace that is thrown. That's really like the wrath that you hold on to, and from that you build something that you, that you can rebuild the shit. You know, as, as you're saying this, Nusayla, I remember there was a, 
there was a moment, I think when it got a little bit, it was closer, when we were getting closer to Maghrib time during the presentation, and I, I don't remember who was speaking. I, I feel like it was the London mayor that was speaking because as we were getting closer to Maghrib time, I think he went on. I had to just go inside and just like compose myself for a second. Everyone was already outside of the masjid. The, you know, all the politicians were sitting down. There was nobody still inside. And I remember I went into the library um, and just sat there for the first time, like all like, for the next two days in like a quiet space. And just, I think that's where it finally, like, as you said, like it, everyone kind of just settled in. It kind of just hits you a little bit differently. And uh, I, I think, you know, what you said that, you know, that, the the Quranic ayah, you know, I, that's always been something that stayed with me as well because it's not like it might come. It's like Allah is saying, you know, it's like a Allah's command is that it will come. Like with hardship will come ease, right? And um, I, I, I do want to just ask you a follow-up question just in terms of the community there is just, you know, how has the community's resiliency been since that day? Like we saw this amazing strength that day. We saw it with, you know, at, at the janazah, you know, we saw 10,000 people come out onto the streets and, I still like kind of, you know, chuckle to myself when I think like we we initially had attended that it was going to be in the back of the masjid. Um, like that was the conversation that we were having first. And then, you know, 10,000 people came out on that street that day where it was like farther than I could ever see. And there were people that drove from every place I could think of that came out that day. And just like, how has the community been since then? I, you know, what's the feeling been in London since, since June? So, I mean, based on the, it depends on the segment of population that you're talking to, right? And the community is so diverse, it's hard to kind of put all of that in one word, or for me to, you know, like, who, who am I to be kind of for the community? Um, but there, there's been a lot of different um, different areas of growth and things that we're seeing. We're seeing, you know, like part, community partners from, let's, for example, White or Small that um, put together like a, an art mural, um, that reflected the, the mural that painted in the mosque. The the community of like her classmates, how they're how they are moving on, right? They, they, that's totally different than how um, the non-Muslim community has been reaching out. But I do think that there are steps. Um, there have been steps towards that healing um, and and that growth. It just. It, as we were saying, kind of the world, the world is hurting so much on so many different levels that it, it just kind of it's, uh, it's it's hard sometimes to see that when you're in the thick of it. But I think when we look back at it, you know, hopefully in years we, we'll see that progression and that growth. I, I think that that's so beautiful, and you know, I, I we're almost like at the end of the time, the allotted time that we have for the podcast. But I do I, before we even go anywhere else, I. I I'd be remiss if we don't actually talk about the Our London Family Act a little bit uh, and just what's inside the Our London Family Act and, you know, what listeners can actually do to help support the Our London Family Act. And to give a, a quick, you know, synopsis to those that are listening that haven't had a chance to, you know, review the act, uh, there's six major parts to it. Uh, as Musa alluded to already, it's the largest piece of omnibus legislation ever introduced in Canada. Uh, there's education reform, there's white supremacy aspects, there's Ontario Hate Crime Accountability Unit, there's you know, anti-racism directorate, recruitment of minorities, um, and increasing time for human rights complaints. And, you know, I don't think we'll have a time to go through all six avenues of, you know, the the bill. Uh, but I do want to just ask you, like, you know, what, what out of the six, like, let's talk about, actually, we have two lawyers on the call here. We have Mustafa and we have Nuseba here. Uh, how about we talk about two of the parts that, you know, mean the most to you that came out with it, that, you know, when you were writing this, when we were putting it into implementation, 
uh, what really came out to it. So out of those six, like what do you feel like stands out the most to you that you feel like is going to be like that biggest, like that kind of big thing that is coming out of this bill here? Maybe, maybe I'll go and then I'll, jump, I'll pass it over to Nisayo for the final word. Um, I guess for me, definitely the number one part of the Ireland Family Act that definitely stands out for me is the education reform piece. Um, like by far when we consulted people and asked them, what do you want to see in response to what happened in London and of course Quebec City and IMO? I think the number one thing I always heard from people is education. Um, the concern that, you know, like how are these young people continue? And if we look at the Quebec City Mosque, IMO, London, these are all young men. Like some of them were like younger than my little brother. Uh, like how does that happen? Um, clearly we're doing something wrong with our education. Um, and so seeing reforms that really do a, a like a, a full reform, not kind of just adding a few pieces on top, but a system reform to challenge Islamophobia throughout our education system to me is the biggest thing. The reality is that for millions of, uh, of people who are growing up in this province, they're not always going to get a chance to meet a Muslim and to have that conversation with them and learn more about them but to actually throughout their education, to learn, to understand, to figure out ways that they can challenge Islamophobia. I truly believe that in the next 20 years, if this passes inshallah, that will be the system change that can make for a world where we never even have to have a group like NCCM, which is my dream. So, I mean, mine is also <laughs> education, but I can explain why. Um, and a lot of it is also kind of based on on the stuff that Mustafa talked about, which is the London community especially knows that this is something that the London youth have talked about, youth everywhere, right? If you're a Muslim who grew up in the public education system in Canada, you undoubtedly have at least one experience of racism um, or Islamophobia that you experienced, whether from teachers sometimes or your peers, um, and sometimes inst institutional, sometimes individual. Uh, and and it has a huge impact on you. And when you look at the perpetrators of these types of attacks, they're young, they're typically young and typically not far removed from the public education system. So there's obviously some kind of large failing there. And uh, and I mean, Siham and Klasim, for example, she's a local Londoner uh, who um, does research on the area of Islamophobia, specifically on children. And she wrote a, a research paper around this and and she looked um interviewed students from the same school that uh Sayez and Yumna attended so the London Muslim Mosque uh, has, has a school adjacent to it that's where she she conducted an interview on growing up you know growing up Muslim what it's like for children and this was in the wake of the Quebec mosque attack so in 2017 and, and the exemplars from that study are really all that you need to you just need to read just those quotes from the exemplars of that study. Kids saying, you know, like, why do people hate us? I'm scared to go to the mosque sometimes. Sometimes I think, is this, you know, is this it? Am I going to come out alive or am, are they going to kill me? It's not normal for a 12-year-old, 13-year-old to be having these kinds of thoughts. And and so much of it is their interactions. Like, this is a private school, but even their interactions at school tournaments with other, you know, people from the public school system. Um, and, and those of us who have then gone into public school systems, and myself included, I'm obviously a product of the public school system here in Ontario, uh, 
and then it becomes very clear that you know this is what I think is the strongest piece around uh, public education in, in the province is that everyone from all persuasions goes to school and it's a set, effectively a captive audience right so if you're not dismantling and disrupting hate at that level it is not only um, a failure of leadership but it is such a missed opportunity um, and that's something that we, we've heard across the country and across the province from people saying you know schools that's that's where scars kind of first start developing um, where people start being bullied where people start learning that they may sh maybe should hide their identity a little bit maybe they're being too muslim maybe this maybe that um you know their teacher says an, an offhand comment and then that carries them through the rest of their life and their own children when they have them so public education is a huge one for me um on a personal note, that's what, probably the one that, that sticks out the most for me because it, it means that hopefully, you know, studies like this in the future will not have the kind of quotes and the kind of the results. That yeah, I think, you know, as we were doing the, the consultations, education was always the number one that every single person brought up. And, you know, for myself, I think, you know, education is definitely the one that stands out for me as well. But I think that, you know, the, the one about white supremacy stands out uh, pretty uh, large as well, just because, you know, it, it stems with what happened at IMO as well. Um, and just intimidating worshipers at, you know, masjids, you know, gudwara synagogues, uh, as well as like, you know, the strategy for the anti-racism directorate. I'm, you know, really, really interested in seeing, you know, how that investing in public service announcements against Islamophobia looks like uh, to combat Islamophobia on the whole um, in, in, in a bigger, in a larger manner. Uh, but, you know, I think for anyone else that wants to read the, the act, it's fully available online. You're able to go to nccm.ca slash uh, our London Family Act and, and read the whole bill. Uh, Alhamdulillah, this week it was tabled and it got passed through first reading. Uh, the NDP tabled it. Uh, it got passed through first reading. And, you know, we've seen support from uh, the Liberal Party of Ontario as well as the Green Party of Ontario. And, um, you know, now is, now is when we need action. Now is when we need action and we need support from our community. You know, the community that was been hurting since June to come together and actually make sure that this is something that becomes a law in Canada. Uh, so for those that, you know, that, you know, that want to take stand, want to take action, we have a letter writing campaign that's open right now that's going to the government, the government of Ontario. Uh, you can go easily to nccm.ca slash support our London Family Act and send a letter to the MPPs uh, and tell them this, this needs to get put into place. You can put your own story in about your lived experiences. You can use the templated uh, example that's there as well. Um, and let them know that this is something that cannot wait. It cannot wait till tomorrow. It can't wait till next year. It can't wait five years from now. Uh, there's been too many people that have been hurt from this. And, you know, as we said in the beginning of this call, you know, out of the G7 countries, more Muslims have been killed from Islamophobic incidents in Canada than any other country. It's not something that is like a fairy tale. It's not something that is an imagination. It's not something that, you know, is just said anymore. It's something that we need to make sure families know that they need to be safer in Canada. And and that's something that needs to happen. So again, you can go to nccm.ca slash support our London Family Act. Send a letter to your local MPP. Give your local MPP a call. Let them know that this needs to get put into place as soon as possible. Um, and inshallah, we can make this uh, just a safer community for all of us. Uh, so saying that, thank you so much, Naseba, for uh, for your time today. Uh, thank you for being part of this discussion. And again, also, just thank you so much for being the, the great stand that you are in the London community. Um, again, I can't say enough about the amazing work that you guys have done. So just thank you for everything that you're doing and that you continue to do. Thank you for having me and for highlighting this really important work. Jazakallah. Thank you.
Musto, that was a great conversation we just had with Nasebo. Yeah, I guess so. I always get social. Like, it's, it's such an emotional conversation when we have these kind of discussions. You know, I just, I, I, I'm, it, it, it's very sad sometimes that we, I remember we did our liaison meeting with our campus liaisons last month and it was only just like this kind of sad stuff. And I think I just, there was a time I had to stop for like two minutes and just go get some water and come back because it's just, it's so heart wrenching sometimes. So, you know, let's, let, let's move it to something a little bit more uh, positive and let's end on a little bit more of a happy note. Have you been playing the internet sensation game Mortal? I played it twice. Twi oh, and... man. So we are addicted over here. Me and my wife play every single night. How have you found yeah, it? I'm like the most like, uh, so in, to get into law school, you have to do this thing called the LSAT, which is like one of the most useless exams, by the way. Okay, I didn't say that at Law Society, but like, <laughs> I personally do not find it a pedagogically rewarding to, you know, method to mark whether you're a good lawyer or not. But one of the things you have to do in there is like, you have to like do like these puzzles. It's like called logic games. We have to figure out like, oh, you know, you have X number of clowns and X clown A can't sit next to clown B and et cetera, et cetera. That kind of thing. I hated puzzles as a kid. And now as an adult, I consciously take any steps that I can to refuse doing a puzzle. So we've been playing uh, Wordle like every night. And did you see that the New York Times bought this guy for like a crazy amount of money? It seems like such a bad investment. And then they have it on their site now. Um, and I swear, since they have bought this game, it has got extraordinarily harder. <laughs> yeah, well, it's the New York Times. Of course, they're going to make it an extraordinarily hard harder. Too. Yeah. But, you know, the craziest thing for me is that this guy just created this game because his wife was bored one day. Um, and then he's like, the way I figured out how to make these five little words is I <laughs> he's like, I just started the game for my wife. And if she knew the word, it continued. And then he made his wife be like the guinea pig deleting all the words that he didn't like that weren't like proper words. Because hey, there's how many five little words in the English language? And he's like, <laughs> she just started deleting all the ones that she didn't know. But we are addicted. And I feel like everyone on Twitter around like 12 o'clock at night starts posting their wordle for the night, the day after. I don't get it though, man. Like it's, it's a weird, it's a weird internet craze, man. It's a crazy, it's that, and now they have something called Quirtle as well, where it's like four wordles simultaneously. And then I tried something called Nerdle, which is like a math game with like a wordle kind of thing. You have to like get the right kind of symbols and everything as well on it. Yeah. As a homeschooler, uh, homeschooling for life, by the way, uh, I consciously refuse to do anything that I'm not a thousand percent invested in doing. <laughs> um, and Wordle is definitely one of those things. You know, I think getting to use my brain on a puzzle. It's like, dude, my life is a puzzle. I can't even figure out how to like solve that. You know, I'm, I have time to go figure out like how many, what this word is. is saying it's not going to happen. You know, I'm generally curious why it's become such a hit. Because, uh, you know, and I think one of the things is you know, very similar to that conversation we had about Super Bowl ads. Uh, last week was the fact that you can only play once a day uh, and you're not allowed, you can't play it again. I think that, that, that restriction on folks that where you can't just like play continuously forever makes everyone have to come back because we're at a time right now where information games, accessibility is at your hands, right? You can turn on your PS five, your PS four and play 50 games in a row of NBA or, or uncharted or whatever you want to play, whatever your game of choice is. Uh, but there's a limitation to this. It's a one, you know, six tries, you get to get a, a five letter word. Uh, and most of the words everyone knows. And then once you get that, you're done kind of thing. And I feel like it's, you know, again, something that goes really against the grain of, you know, the 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 reality of what it is right now, where it's everyone wants all the information as fast as possible and to do game after game after game after game and continue through it. 
I think it's also like a social component to as well, like getting to do with your friends, getting to compete, getting to post your scores, all that stuff. Uh, I think that's probably a driver. And then also, I think people like, you know, pushing against something. I think oftentimes it's just like, it's a, it's a fun activity to do that everyone, there's like a low entry point. Yeah, I, I think I, I'll be, you're right. Like there's been people I haven't talked to for years that have messaged me because they saw my tweet. But you know, uh, the, the last thing we'll talk about is just a, a lot about biases as well, just in terms of our own self. You know how I said that, that it feels like it got a lot harder since the New York Times has bought the game. They did a research on it. And, and in fact, what they've come out with is the New York Times actually took out the harder words and only left the easy words in it. So I, what they've come to like surmise from it is the fact that our we, we, we tell ourselves that because the New York Times has it and we have this bias towards what the New York Times does, that That's it's got harder, wild. that it's actually not, it's not actually easier than, than before. That's wild. So they actually, that also seems like the kind of thing like, you know, do we really trust the New York Times? Exactly. So like, these the, are the guys who came up with Caliphate too, you know, <laughs> like, do we really trust them when they said they deleted the hardware? Yeah. So what they did is I don't so know. when you could wordle before you could actually go into the code of it and see every word that they had that was going to come next. So like if today's word was house, you could see that tomorrow's word was going to be phone and what every word is from infinity kind of thing. So oh. they went into the code of the one for the New York Times and saw what they've taken out and what they've replaced. And they saw they only took out five words. And they were all like pretty t hard words that you would pretty like much never get. Um, there was one inappropriate word they took out and four like really hard words. And I'm like, they've actually technically made it easier. They've not changed anything on the code. But I think we have like this, this internal bias that when New York Times does something, that, that we just assume that, it, that they messed it up. I just that it's a bunch of people like who are like, oh, you know, this is going to be a fun way to torment people. Just like that. Have you ever tried to do the New York Times crossword puzzle? Oh, I don't. I cannot do that. I it's like that kind of thing. Like, uh, you know. I get if I, I'll be happy to get one clue on the New York Times crossword. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, man. It's like uh, there's like a certain kind of like bougie, like sort of liberal, wealthy person thing. I think that's more like it's not just that the fact that we think the New York Times is smart or intelligent. It's that we think that they're going to also try to like, you know, troll everybody else by making them not feel as smart. As that, that's exactly what everyone thinks with this right now, that they're trolling everybody. They're trolling everyone. And that's exactly it. I There was a, a pizzazz was the word the other day and nobody was able to get that. Okay, well, pizzazz is like that. Like, there's gonna be a hard word. A lot of people don't know how to spell pizzazz. Bro, how, how do you, do you get, get pizzazz, bro? Pizzazz is a. Uh, how do you guess the z disease that are in that thing? <laughs> uh, it's just not gonna be possible. But yeah, that that's uh, that brings us to the end um, to, for this episode. Uh, thank you so much, Mustafa, for joining us. Thank you, Nuseiba, for uh, coming out for today. Um, again, for anyone that is looking to support the Our London Family Act, head over to nccm.ca/support Our London Family Act. Send a letter to your local MPP. Let them know that that this needs to be a law that is placed right away. It needs to be done as soon as possible. For everyone else, you can find us all on all the social medias on Instagram at nccm underscore community, nccm Muslims on Facebook, and nccm on Twitter. Uh, thank you guys so much for joining us for this episode, and inshallah, we'll see you guys next week. Take care. Assalamu alaikum. <laughs>